five, four, three. And welcome back once again to Not the Public Podcast. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and he's Bruce Dobigan. Uh, what's the name of your column? The name of my column. I don't have a regular column. I write when I feel like I play when I want to play. Well, what's it called when you actually vomit this thing out there? So I don't. I don't have a regular. I don't got to name my columns, man. It's Reese Dobigan. I, I thought it was all about creatures uh, or alien creatures or whatever the the heading was. Isn't that? Part oh, of the you deal? Mean, you mean the movies? Well, whatever, whatever, whatever you call your darn column. Well, I'm telling you, it's it's the blog. Do androids dream of culture? Write about right. movies, music. That's not my column. It's not a column. You got you got, you know. Anyways, it's not my column. I share Evan writes on there sometimes. You know. All right. I can well, start whatever. calling it my column. I'll take it. I'll take that. Under the heading or whatever it is. Anyhow, mine is called uh, Mondays, as everyone knows. I don't like Mondays. That's usually sports. And as uh, we've uh, said before, usual suspects Wednesday or Thursday, depending on just how lazy I feel or what's going on. That's when you can usually see the column on our website, which is of course not the public as opposed to the public broadcaster, which is CBC, we are not the public broadcaster.com. Uh, having right done, we are. Absolutely. Having done all that, uh, that sort of stuff. I should point out, by the way, uh, as well, uh, starting next Monday, I'm going to start appearing on uh, Sirius Re XM radio a couple or three times a week on uh, the Canada Talks channel 146 on uh, Sirius XM radio. So we'll be uh, a lot of the stuff that we have in the columns and on the website and the things that you and I talk about, we'll also be talking about there. So a little bit of news there for people. So uh, give it a listen. And if I, you're not I, a listening to satellite radio, uh, I, I'd recommend it. I, that's all I really listen to anymore. I'm one of your first guests, right? Uh, well, uh, no, I'm not the host. I'm the guest on somebody else's show, but oh. I will see what happens. We'll see what happens. Oh. When I feel you're sufficiently experienced and actually have something worth saying, then you know, then we'll advance you up up to the, the greasy pole. Of fame. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyhow, let's start with this last last weekend in the NFL. Um, I guess uh, you can't say anyone is is completely surprised. Uh, I guess the biggest surprise for me was just. Would Atlanta show up? Would they be the team we'd seen all year long? Would they be able to play well? Uh, they were at home, fast track, you know, good weather, etc. And they were all that in a bag of chips. And uh, and then afterwards, of course, the New England Patriots do what the Patriots always do. Uh, and uh, so I think <laughs> I don't know if you saw this, but somebody on the internet had a uh, had a tweet, and it was all of the games in the postseason, and it was all like boring, 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 great game, boring, 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 boring. In other words, it hasn't been much of a postseason. But uh, let's start the, with the Atlanta Atlanta game and get your feelings on that. Well, maybe I haven't watched enough Atlanta games this year, but who has? Nobody. This is like the first time we've all seen them. I guess that's a perfect perfect example of it. I mean, I, I just it could have also been that they were playing the Packers defense, but man, Atlanta looked fast. They, their offense looked, I mean, and their defense, they looked very fast. Um, that's the, like you said, the fast turf uh, at, at uh, the Georgia Dome. So that probably had a lot to do with it, but man, they looked, they looked really, really good. Um, not very competitive game overall. I was a bit surprised by that, but considering the way that the whole year has gone, really that's not a shock. Um, so 
it, it was an interesting game. I mean, Atlanta looked fantastic start to finish, but there were a lot of little things in that game that I thought if you were to play that game a second or third or fourth time, you know, if you played it out, it wouldn't go quite that way every single time. You know, I think Green Bay had some, there were some plays in there that don't happen generally in a football game. I mean, that fumble yeah. down there within the 10 by Green Bay, that that normally doesn't happen. If they had scored on that drive, it would have been a Well, it was a 17-10 to 10 game at the half, except the Green Bay missed a field goal that Mason Crosby was making in his sleep the week before. Uh, and then secondarily, of course, uh, their uh, their Polish uh, fullback fumbled on the two or three yard line. And that was it. I mean, other, otherwise, it was a relatively close game. I, I think you would agree. Most people felt Green Bay's only way of winning this game was to keep just keep scoring the way they've been scoring before, because I think they had the equipment boy and, and, and the water guy out there playing DB for them. And they knew they just couldn't put those guys out too long. And once they got behind, Atlanta scored the way I thought they would. Green Bay missed its chances, and uh, I, I guess I guess the thing for me is, you know, I understand why the Lions didn't beat Green Bay because the Lions can't figure out anything when it matters. But Dallas, this you know, watching that game last uh, this week, and then reflecting on the Dallas game uh, against Green Bay, man, what an indictment of the Cowboys! I would disagree, actually. I I, I don't know that that Cowboys the case. offense. Well, yeah, I mean, but but at the same time, the Cowboys. I mean, they went down to the wire with them, so it wasn't as if they weren't, you know, they weren't well matched. They just didn't, they just didn't pull through. I think if you look at how Green Bay's season has gone, halfway through the year, a lot of people were writing them off, and maybe it it was just that case of Aaron Rodgers and that team having to put their best foot forward week in and week out, and re- and really, really focus for such a long stretch that. Once they hit Atlanta, it all came crashing back down to earth, and we saw the kind of team they really were for most of the year. If you were to say what kind of team was this from start to finish, that, that looks like the team that they that they probably were. That second-half team was the one that pushed into the playoffs, but that wasn't really who they were. So I, I don't know. I think Dallas was just the unlucky last team to be playing them before their mojo ran out. I suppose, but you know, you, when you're a good team, you control the destiny. Even though, even though you said that Dallas had a chance to win that game, and they certainly did, I still felt like Green Bay controlled the emotion, controlled the the, the pace of that game, and and I, I thought they were still a deserving winner. But uh, you know, another thing people will say about Atlanta, oh yeah, well they're just a home team, they play in a dome on a fast track and all that sort of stuff, which is true. But that was also supposed to be true of Dallas, and they had the Packers where they wanted them to in in a dome fast track, all those sorts of things, everybody going crazy, uh, and, and they couldn't take advantage of it. And, uh, you know, again, uh, Dallas will have other kicks at the can because they've got a, a young quarterback. He doesn't have to get paid for a couple of years. That allows them to pay other people. Uh, as we saw in Seattle, that was Seattle's secret for a few years, a cheap quarterback who was one of the top two or three, and, uh, and then you were able to afford other guys. And the minute you have to start paying your quarterback the way the Bears do, the way the Lions do, all of a sudden those other guys, you can't afford them. And uh, anyhow, I, I, I just, you know, all props to, to uh, Green Bay uh, for getting a Jordy Nelson. Man, uh, having, having had cracked ribs myself, how that guy was even breathing, let alone playing, just, just a really great effort. And uh, that, they, they competed as best they could. And uh, Atlanta, the better team. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, too, it's, um, that was one of those rare games where you really got to see a, a superstar at the height of his powers um, on display. I remember Larry Fitzgerald 
you know, oh gosh, it may be six or seven years. When, when Arizona made that first um, run towards the Super Bowl and, and Larry Fitzgerald was absolutely unstoppable in every single playoff game. That's the yeah. way Julio Jones has looked so far. That was a beast mode t- TD. I mean, Ooh. when he, he shakes off the tackle and then he straight arms the second guy, yeah. that was like, holy mackerel, yeah. that was really something. Really I, something. That, great, that's the great case catch. of you really, whatever Green Bay uh, planned to do to try and stop him clearly didn't work at all and probably was never going to work no matter what they did. You know, they had they ran safety high over top of him a little bit, but that was like – that doesn't really work. I mean, that the safety was basically, I heard this somewhere, someone said the safety was just, had the front row seat of the crime of the century of that, that one-on-one matchup, that uh, Gunther, whomever, I mean, I don't even know his name, had to go one-on-one with Julio Jones, and the safety's just, yeah, I got coverage over top, but really, yeah. he's just, he's just, you know, front row seat to the carnage. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned safeties because uh, if there's one image that I have of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers losing to New England, uh, it, it was that that play early on with the flea flicker where the where the uh, yeah. P- Patriots do the flea flicker and uh, Chris Hogan, uh, hands up everybody who saw him as the as the player of the game, uh, he goes scooting across the middle, the safety bites on the on the fake into the line, comes up. Hogan goes by him like there's no tomorrow, and he's wide open for the touchdown. And I thought, safety, and then and again, on on the first touchdown that Hogan had in the end zone, once again, the safeties just left him alone. Like, <laughs> he was all alone there for a wave and a wave. The safety was about, I would say it was about 15 or 20 feet away, and never ever made a move towards him or, or, or to shade towards him. And he got the two touchdowns. So I think that among the many things that Pittsburgh will regret uh, is that their safety play was something less than 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 laudable in that game uh, against New England? But that's what Bill Belichick does. Clearly, somebody saw something on the tape about their their safeties, much like that safety that the Bears had against the Packers. Anyhow, uh, saw something on tape, and boy, did they hammer it! I'm going to ignore that last comment, even though it is true. It's very true. Um, <laughs> Bears hey, we're the team that had the Hail Mary against us. I mean, go ahead. You can you can kick me for the Hail Mary. I, I understand. Well, listen, there's, it, if there's something in the NFL that is sorely lacking. It's it's great safety play. It's either you have these guys that are just tremendous safeties, and, and they're like Swiss Army knives, and you can move them around all over the field, or there's there's just – they're pedestrians. You know, safety play in the NFL is, is hard to watch sometimes these days. And a big part of that is just this, the, the way the game is played, the success of the quarterbacks and how much they throw. And, you know, the safeties are kind of stuck. They're like small linebackers, slow cornerbacks. So they kind of get left out to dry a lot of the time. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, Pittsburgh, I think, t- caught a lo- uh, tough break when um, Le'Veon Bell got hurt. You know, he was their offense for most this year. They relied on him so much. And when he when he couldn't come back into the game, you know, what were they going to do? They weren't going to be able to catch up. They weren't going to be able to to go tit for tat with with Brady without their best playmaker. And I think they got really unlucky in that game. Yeah, well, they certainly missed him. And uh, his his style will be really quite interesting to see next year uh, because it's a copycat league, whether we start to see more running backs 
and offensive coordinators do this where they, they play the style that Bell does, which is he basically waits back there, watches which way the, 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 the blockers take the blocks, and then goes. Typically in the NFL, as you know, it's a race to the hole. I mean, running backs are judged on how quickly they can hit the hole and get through there. The Steelers have exactly the same idea, opposite idea, which is their guy sits back there, and he's, he's like knitting a sweater waiting for the holes to open up. Then he goes through the hole. And it'll be interesting to see if other people imitate that. Uh, and let, that was Le'Veon Bell's co contribution to the NFL season. And uh, for a while, it, was, it looked like something they couldn't stop. Uh, a groin problem. Apparently, he'd had it from the game before as well. They knew that it might be a problem. And it's not like it's not like the, the running back that they had behind him was was all that bad. Uh, it's just that he was their bell cow. He was their kind of, you know, the guy who had gotten them there. And sometimes psychologically, teams see the, one guy go down, one special guy go down, and they go, there's no way we can win today. Yeah, it's an, that's an interesting comment you make about whether teams are going to copy that. Because, I, I mean, there's much... Of course it's interesting. Everything I say is interesting. To yeah, me, at uh, least. keep telling yourself that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't... There's a lot smarter people when it comes to football than, than, than me. There's, they're out there, and I'm, I'm not going to purport to be some genius. But to me, we've seen running backs who are patient. We've seen uh, running backs who, are, who plays different styles and it doesn't necessarily look to me like a style I haven't seen before it just looks like a team that has successfully worked that kind of blocking style as a group the the offensive line knows that they can block a certain way because Le'Veon's gonna run this way and catch those seams and go you know every team is gonna have a different way of blocking and if you've got a crappy offensive line who just can't block period they can't head up, uh hat on hat man on block where they can't zone block it doesn't really matter what style the running back's running how patient they are how quick they hit the hole you're not going to run very well so i think that that bell his patience was as much a product of of how well they ran blocked as than it is just some game changing thing you know he said he's i'm i'm the steph curry of the nfl i'm like i don't know man i i don't see how that that to me doesn't apply. Steph, Steph Curry doesn't get himself suspended for for four games by the NFL, uh, by the NBA. That, that doesn't happen. I I, I can't imagine. I can't believe that you actually missed. To me, the guy who he most reminds me of is is a guy who you have a tattoo of on your butt, and that of course is sweetness. Walter Payton had that style, the the the, the hanging back, the lingering style, the waiting until his offensive lineman mauled the guys in front of him, and then popping through. To me, that'd be maybe my closest comparison to what Le'Veon Bell does. Yeah, no, I, I'd absolutely agree. And and I, I would say that you look at the way their offensive lines play and you look at their central offensive philosophy and it was they get big, mauling offensive linemen who just go out there and try and manhandle the guy in front of them. And not to say it's easy to run behind that, but a guy with a patient style is going to sit back there and watch the carnage for a, for you know a beat longer than the average player is going to have a lot of success running behind that kind of a physical offensive line let your offensive linemen set up the blocks and then you follow where they take you so often i see r r running backs especially young running backs are all scared and they run right past their blockers and they get stopped much sooner than they they should have because they don't trust their blockers to do the job and it's a, 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 a the other point i wanted to bring up about about the steelers 
And this also harkens back to the Giants. I'm, you know, the Giants had the famous thing with all the receivers going on the off day down to Miami and coming back. And lo and behold, in their playoff game, nobody could seem to hang on to the ball. And of course, for the Steelers this week, it was just an airhead move. The video of Mike Tomlin's postgame speech that was taken by, uh, was it Bryant? I guess Antonio it was Bryant. Brown. Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown. I'm just going like... Just the most boneheaded. Oh, I was caught up in the excitement. No, you weren't. You're just a you're just a dumbass who just thought he was being clever. And honestly, I don't really believe that 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 necessarily made them lose. On the other hand, there's two teams who like thumb their nose at the, at the uh, at the golf golf uh, the gods of football. Doing things you shouldn't, going on the off day to Miami, you know, taping the the, the post game speech, all those sort of airhead things, and. It, it comes back to get you. I, there's no reason why it should, but it comes back and it gets both of those teams. I think that it's an example of how every NFL team should just fire all their receivers because they're the only ones that ever get people in trouble. Well, DBs get themselves in trouble too, but DBs are just wide receivers who can't catch. Exactly. You get rid of all those guys <laughs> who are fancy asses and the game would be better. No one would ever get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I, there's there's no logical reason for it. There should be no cause and effect in terms of you do something stupid, you say something stupid during the week and your team loses. But boy, it just happens so often that you have to kind of almost believe that there's some there's some karma out there, some sports karma that works against you and two teams that did it. So well, I would presume both, uh, certainly uh, the, the, the Patriots know what they're doing going in. They're not going to make any unforced fumble, unforced errors going in. Maybe somebody in Atlanta gets a little excited. They haven't been there for a while. Maybe he does something stupid. Uh, what was the name of Robinson? The guy who got arrested for, for trying to solicit a hooker years Eugene ago. Robinson. Eugene Atlanta Robinson. Falcons. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's going to be a Eugene Robinson guy do something like that. Hopefully not. But uh, as I say, it's just kind of an, a, a, a sideline to it. it. It was kind of funny to me. Uh, we'll talk about the Super Bowl in our next podcast in terms of what we see there and who, who's going to win or lose. Uh, honestly, right now, I think it's a, until I see how Atlanta shows up. I, I just I just can't handicap the game. Uh, I think if, if the Atlanta team we saw this week shows up and knows how to play, I think they'll win. But anyway, we can talk about it the next time we, we, we get around uh, to doing the podcast. Uh, you are listening, by the way, to Not the Public Podcast on uh, our website. Of course, it's not the public broadcaster.com. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and he's Reese Dobigan. Hey, everyone, it's Reese talking. I just want to take a moment to plug a couple of our other podcasts. First one is the Sound and Groove podcast, hosted by Evan. He breaks down the world of music, teaches you a little bit about the history of music. The guy has an encyclopedic knowledge, so I'm sure you'll learn a thing or two. The other podcast is On to Mike with Mace and Rice. That's hosted by CFL veteran Corey Mace, along with this beautiful guy right here. We talk about a few more of the gossipy stories in sports, off-the-cuff stuff, really fun, really funny. So we hope you tune in to either one of those shows. We hope you enjoy them. And now I will send you back to the show. Now, we were talking a little bit about the column, uh, my column, I Don't Like Mondays. And uh, one of the, the, the column this week that I wrote was I was sitting there this week and well, I was doing a lot of sitting because of the weather, et cetera. But when you see something that is the, the greatest that has ever been and, and, and that the sample size is pretty big, you have to kind of sit there and wow, you know, just kind of pinch yourself and say, this is terrific. And, and on, at least for Canadian athletes, 
I saw at least two or three things happen this weekend that, you know, 20 years from now, you'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that happening. And no one else has done it before and no one else will do it again. Uh, the first one, of course, was uh, I'm watching the golf on Saturday uh, and they're playing down in uh, in Palm Springs. And of course, Adam Hadwin from Abbotsford, B.C. is uh, he's the, one of the Canadians playing in the tournament. Now, the tournament on the weekend in Palm Springs, they play on three different courses because it's a pro-am and they got lots of people and they can't fit them all on one course. So there's three different courses. NBC, in its infinite wisdom for the Saturday broadcast, decides to only have cameras covering two of them, the Nicholas course and the stadium course. Needless to say, Adam Hadwin, the pride of Abbotsford, B.C., he is over in the La Quinta course. And all of a sudden, we're like kind of watching the scoreboard, the crawl on the screen. And like the guy's got 10, 11 straight birdies. The guy is like he's 11 or 12 under par and he's still got five or six holes to go. And now we, we're sort of going like, well, why isn't NBC doing anything about it? Of course, they hadn't put the cameras out there. So now they've got a big story breaking. This kid's on a ch has a chance for 57, 58, 59. As you know, 59 being the you know the miracle number in golf that there had only I think been eight before this one, uh, and. So they hustle the camera over there, and they finally get a kind of a long-range view of Hadwin teeing off. And the reward for it, of course, is he hits the ball, and all of a sudden somebody, as loud as I've ever heard on a broadcast, F-bombs right there. <laughs> and John, Johnny Miller and Dan Hicks, who are the two announcers, they first of all, they've had all, the all of the anxiety about even getting some pictures of this guy. As soon as they get pictures of him, they get F-bombed. Uh, so it was, it was ridiculous. But anyhow... Uh, after that was over, he uh, he was cool as a cucumber. I I just was sitting there saying, 59. This is, even if he finishes at 60, that will be as good a round as any Canadian man has ever had on the PGA Tour. And we're talking 60, 70 years of Canadians playing on the tour. Uh, and if he makes 59, he'll be the first Canadian to do that man, Canadian man to do that on, in a tournament. And I'm sitting there saying, man, this is history. This is at, you know I'm a golfer, so obviously I appreciate. It. This is history when I'm watching with this guy. And sure enough, he was as cool as a cucumber, got a birdie on 17. That took him to 59, or in line for 59. All he needs is a par on 18. So-so eh, drive, lousy approach, has to chip up. And then he's got like the three or four footer with the knees knocking. He drains it, like no doubt about it. So a 59 for Adam Hadwin, that's history. And I just thought, wow, you know, to be sitting there watching that, you know you're not going to see that every day of the week. I may never see a Canadian Tour Pro make a 59 again. So, and it's and it's a big sample size, so it's worth talking about. Well, when was the last time a Canadian golfer was even relevant like that? I mean, for just a round. I mean, I don't know enough about golf, but you know, for a single round, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, for well, a single round. Like I remember Mike Weir when he won the what was it? The the, ma Masters. the Masters. The Masters. I remember that, but that was like, I was like 13 or 14 years old, maybe at that time. And, yeah. and since then, I can't, I couldn't tell you a Canadian golfer. I really couldn't. Well, no, no Canadian has won a major since that moment. And now you sit back and realize, hey, <laughs> you know, these things don't happen every day. I might be here sitting here 30 years from now talking about that round and people go, really? You saw Mike Weir win the Masters or really you saw Adam shoot 59? And I, to me as a sports fan, seen it all, done it all type of thing. But once in a while, those kind of things kick up. And, and uh, it was great. Uh, 
I did a list in, in my column. Go on, go on uh, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can see some of the other rounds that I compared it to. It's certainly in the top seven or eight, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of golf. Mike Weir's final round in the, in the Masters. Uh, Stephen Ames' final round when he won the 2008 TPC. Fantastic performance uh, by him. Uh, you probably have to put Marlene Stewart Street. She won both the uh, U.S. Ladies Amateur and the British Ladies Amateur back when those tournaments really meant something. Uh, so there's, you know, and, and of course, Brooke McKenzie last year uh, winning the LPGA uh, tournament, the major LPGA tournament at the age of 18 is just a stunning accomplishment for her. So uh, that that round for him is is up there. And the other good part about it is he didn't gag the next day. Uh, you know, how often do you see a guy shoot a really, really low round and the next day he's he like he shoots five over and uh, had one shot two under. And he managed to finish second in the tournament, drained three really tough putts down the, the, the stretch and just missed winning the tournament. So uh, a moment that, that uh, we'll always remember. Uh, another one that was happening, and uh, I was watching the game with your, your mother, uh, well, not the game, but the competition with your mother, and of course, the Canadian Men's Figure Skating Championships, and uh, uh, just a, Patrick Chan, just a fantastic performance, his ninth men's title in Canada. Uh, and I, I think... In doing so, I think you have to say this is the greatest male figure skater we've ever had in Canada. And that's saying a lot when you consider Elvis Stoika, when you consider Kurt Browning, when you consider uh, uh, all the guys who've, who've come before him. Uh, it just was just one of those moments. Say, how dare you? How dare you sully the name of Elvis Stoichko? Stoiko. Yeah, that's what I said. Stoichko. Hey, he's a, 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 we were fun. You know, I, we were the friends coolest, when I, I used to cover him. The coolest mullet on the ice ever. That includes <laughs> hockey players. And he used to do all of the mar mixed martial arts stuff, the moves, the mixed martial arts moves on the ice, which uh, prefigured your interest in the guys with the cauliflower <laughs> ears. So. That must have been it. Yeah. And then, of course, there was a, the, the men's uh, four-man's four uh, cross-country ski team. Uh, they won the, for the first time ever in an FIS ski event. I think this goes back 80 or 90 years. The first time Canada ever won the gold medal uh, in, in a relay, men's relay. Uh, I, I, another one of those, you know, I never thought we'd see it, things. And then finally, uh, we're heading towards... Uh, a possibility tonight, we're recording this in the afternoon, tonight um, Milos Raonic is playing uh, against uh, Rafael Nadal yeah. in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. Uh, and, and with Djokovic out and with uh, with uh, Andy Murray out, uh, there's, there's a real opening for maybe the first Canadian man to ever win uh, a Grand Slam. A male Grand Slam winner for tennis would be another thing. So it's it just was a it's been a remarkable week for me to watch sports because as I say I've seen it all, done it all type of thing. And here are three or four things which I've never seen before, and they may never happen again. Well, it makes you uh, proud to be a Canadian to know that uh, that our athletes are still going out there and you know representing despite the overwhelming odds that is that. Uh, seemingly against us when it comes to the, the sporting world but you know and you know one of the things about it is Reese, and, and and you know you've done some you did some competing one of the things that that, that it, it, it about it is that canadians when i was growing up or even when i was your age i mean canadians were always happy just to show up and get the bronze medal and everybody gave them a parade when they came home from the bronze medal and canadians in this day and age second place it's just it's just not it's not a big deal they don't want second place. We want the gold. I, I attribute that to the men's hockey teams that uh, took that uh, own the podium theory 
And uh, that's that's what I'm seeing out of Canadian athletes yeah. these days. First is the only thing worth competing for. It's not a very Canadian sentiment typically, uh, but in sports, our amateur athletes, men and women, I should stress, and women as well, uh, have that attitude about, hey, I didn't just show up here to get the bronze. I showed up here to get the gold, and if I don't win, I'm going to be pissed off. Yeah. Well, especially in, in winter sports, we've got some of the best facilities in the world. You know, you go down to Windsport at Canada Olympic Park here in Calgary. You have uh, teams from all over the world coming here to train on our turf because our facilities are that good. I was uh, I actually was watching the, the Green Bay, um, uh, the, the NFL game two weeks ago. Green Bay's the wild card game, and the Giants. Uh, that's correct. And uh, a friend of mine, his girlfriend is from New Zealand. Friend of hers is on the new the New Zealand uh, half pipe ski team. She's in Calgary training on our half pipe at COP. So there you go. I was I was saying they got to come here to train on our turf. Um, so not only are we, are we really pushing the boundaries athletically trying to get that first place, like you said, but you know, we're, we're, we're really pushing the edge when it comes to our facilities. We're top of the line. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's encouraging actually, uh, our, our old friend, well, your old professor and my old friend, uh, David Legg is going to be doing a sort of a mock Olympic bid for Calgary <clears throat> as people out there may or may not know, uh, Calgary is probably going to mount another Olympic bid. I believe it's 2024 for the winter Olympics and Calgary would like to host again. I mean, I, I think you can say without fear of being contradicted that in terms of winter Olympics, Calgary is certainly the top five winter Olympics of all time. They made money. They left a legacy. They did all the right things, etc. So I think Calgary might want to go back there. And as I say, our friend David Legg is going to do a thing at Mount Royal University. He's going to do a, a mock bid where he's going to have his students sort of do a mock bid. And I'll be one of the judges to to see whether I think they make the case that Calgary should go and get the Olympics once again. You missed one very important point about the 1988 Olympics. It also spawned the greatest Olympics movie, Cool Runnings. I thought you were going to say Eddie the Eagle. <clears throat> oh, God, no, don't bring that up, Don't bring that up. They, oh, God, they CGI'd and faked the whole uh, venue for the Calgary Olympics in that movie. They didn't even film it on location. If you watch that movie, they don't recreate Canada Olympic Park. They make up some crazy new fandangled-looking ski hill I've never seen before. I was yeah. furious. Furious. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, those were in the days when the Canadian dollar was closer to par, and it wasn't as big a deal to, to tape and film in Canada. I have a suspicion that if they were filming it today or getting the financing today, they'd probably do it in Canada now that we've got a 75-cent dollar, which has a lot to do with where you, as you well know, being the movie expert, where you film. Yeah, those guys. The Brits. I always like the Brits, and then they make that, and it's oh, those yeah. guys. I didn't see that this morning, of course, they had the the Oscar nominations. Any sports-related stuff that came out of the Oscars? Was there any sports movie this year that got some some wreck, some some pub? I don't think so. I mean, uh, Denzel Washington's directorial film, in which he also stars, called Fences, I believe his character plays a former baseball player whose son is a star football player ready to go off to college. Well, I, I guess I guess there's a bit of a tie in there, uh, you know. Denzel, he's I mean he's great. He's great. All every role he's awesome. So you know, 
the big thing this year is La La Land, 14 nominations. I think that that breaks the record for nominations, and everyone expects them to sweep. But surprise, But a good surprise. Canadian boy, a Canadian boy. Hey, yeah, there, that Ryan Gosling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you didn't like he, dancing in that movie, but I enjoyed it. He didn't wear no face mask, gay, no face mask, no helmet. Hey, you know, he goes into the corners. <laughs> yeah, something tell me he wore a cage to protect that uh, the franchise. That melon that he's got. Yeah, it, uh, well, I, as I told you, I thought La La Land uh, was, was going to probably do well in the nominations, if only because... Hollywood loves movies about making movies, and that's this ever. is an homage. And as we discussed on the weekend uh, when we were talking, uh, I had just uh, watched and taped Les Parapluies de Cherbourg, a movie called The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, 1963. 21-year-old Catherine Deneuve was in it. And if you want to see where the director of La La Land got nine-tenths of the material for the movie, just watch Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's not to everybody's liking because uh, the whole thing is sung. It's music all the way through. It's Michel Legrand, who is a great composer, but it's sort of like an opera to a certain extent. You have to sit there and be patient with it. You eventually kind of get into the in a hang of it. But in terms of the music, in terms of the the setting, the colors, and then the characters, and the, and the, the, the plot line at the end of La La Land is a total ripoff of Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So if you're looking for a little background and you want to see where the guy got all of his inspiration from, that's the movie to go and see. Well, I guess we're shamelessly plugging our articles in this in this uh, podcast, so I'm going to throw it out there and say, look out. I'm going to post an article next week. Um, the best movies I watched in 2016. Not the best movies of 2016. The best movies that I saw in 2016. So, uh, Give us watched- a hint. Give us a taste. Ooh, I can't, I can't be doing that. Okay, I, I really got into some Studio Ghibli this year, which for those who may know is basically the Disney of Japan. I watched okay. three Studio Ghibli movies. Uh, fantastic stuff. Uh, watched the, went back and watched The Hustler again, which was just incredible for a sports theme thing. Um, yeah. But I watched, I watched like 117 movies last year. Right, I kept track. So there's almost a lot the number on that of, list. It's almost the name, number of rounds of golf I played last year. Well, unfortunately, one of those is more <laughs> beneficial than the other. I'm, I'm not going to say which. <laughs> well, I had lots of exercise. What can I say? There you go. Uh, any final thoughts uh, for this week? Any MMA, any UFC stuff you want to tell us about that really is uh, burning a hole in your brain, or, or are we done? I, re- I Well, I read a really great column by uh, Kevin Aoli for Yahoo Sports who made the argument that if Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor ever end up fighting – it yes. will be Conor McGregor's last fight in the UFC, or he won't fight in the UFC after which because he'll price himself out of, of their pocket. They'll never be able to afford to have him fight under their banner again. Very interesting perspective. And what, and what did he say about handicapping the fight itself? Who did he think would win? Uh, I mean, well, pretty much every uh, article or discussion about a Mayweather-McGregor fight is prefaced by the we all know McGregor is going to get starched thing. So Really? Uh, I mean, he's in his prime, and Floyd Mayweather's right at the end of it. Floyd Floyd's a non-confrontational guy. I mean, when Floyd boxes, he's not a guy in there swinging, and, and you know the snot ain't flying with him. He's a stylist kind of guy. And and if he gets in and, and you have the rules that you can have in UFC where the guy can can mess you up and kick you and then get on you when, uh, he, when you're on the uh, canvas... Uh, but that it, might, would, it be wouldn't be MMA rules. That's the thing is, is it would be in a boxing ring. And as you know, with, with Floyd Mayweather, that he is a businessman. He does not engage in 
any business transaction that is not stacked in his favor. It's going to be in the size of ring he wants. It's going to be with the size of gloves he wants. It's going to be at the time of night he wants. The price of the hot dogs are going to be what he wants. Uh, and he's going to be fighting against a guy who, if he's fought a 12-round fight, I, I've never heard about it. If he's fought a 10-round fight, I've never heard about it. So you're sticking Conor McGregor in there against the greatest defensive fighter in boxing history. And he doesn't like to get hit. Yeah. Well, it's not even that he doesn't like to get hit. He doesn't get hit. So you're putting McGregor in there against that guy, whether he's at the end of his career or McGregor's in his prime, it doesn't matter. He's probably not going to touch him. Well, if McGregor can't kick him, yeah, then I think it all falls to in, in, in Mayweather's way. But the thing about all of the guys in combat sports is it all works until it doesn't. And it happens fast with all of the best fighters, and I've seen the greatest of them with Ali. I remember Larry Holmes at the end of his career, seeing guys who, who were terrific fighters, and they just push it a little too far. And May, Mayweather is, is certainly not at the prime of his career, so it would be an interesting confrontation. That it would be. Uh, there would be a lot of people watching. All righty, you've been listening to Not the Public Podcast. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and he's... Bruce Dobigan. And uh, we'll be back. Uh, we'll do a little pre-Super Bowl thing maybe next week sometime, and we'll uh, we'll get into the game in depth and try to handicap it. And I'll try to find a couple of uh, prop bets that might be interesting, too, for you to follow if you wanted to put down a nickel or two as you go into the game. So uh, we'll do that next bets. week. Uh, love them props. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Not the Public Broadcast. And again, don't forget, the website is notthepublicbroadcaster.com. As well, you can listen to my podcasts. They are on the antica.ca network. Uh, my podcast is called The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Uh, last week, uh, just fantastic interview with uh, Heather McDonald uh, about uh, crime in the United States and black lives don't matter. And this week, a really interesting discussion about uh, climate change. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, listen to them all. I appreciate you doing it, and we'll talk again soon. Bye.